invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to Luke 4. I had intended to preach the second half of my message on the temptations of Christ last Sunday evening, but the Lord um, made it apparent that it was not His timing. I believe He wants the bulk of the church to hear this message. And so I will be preaching it this morning, as you can see. Temptation and Faith Part 2. Last Sunday morning I exposited verses 1 through 4 specifically, the first of three temptations of Satan toward Jesus Christ in the wilderness. After 40 days of temptation, these were the final three following the 40 days of fasting and temptation. Jesus at His lowest physical point, Satan's temptations being the culmination of that. Jesus is tired, He is hungry, and that first temptation, we recall, the temptation to take what God has not provided, or to meet His needs apart from God's methods and provision. And we mentioned that in that same way, all throughout our lives, we will be tempted, you will be tempted, throughout your life to take what God has not provided, or to meet your needs apart from God's methods of provision. And we warned you against that, and and that certainly you can live that way, but that there's, there's a, a blessing to living under God's provision in faith. We spent added time on that point this morning because we particularly as believers in this culture, Western culture, I would say struggle with this. And so I spent a little bit of more time on it just because of the nature of our culture with the welfare state and with um, the proliferation of debt and with all of these things that, that we can use to, to meet our, our material needs, but then also with modern psychology and with the proliferation of mental illness and all of the ways that the world wants us to try to meet our spiritual and emotional needs outside of Christ as well. We're going to continue this morning in verse 5. Where the scriptures tell us of the second temptation. The scriptures tell us, And the devil, taking him up into a high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. The second temptation, Satan, the devil, he's called the devil, also known as Satan, takes him up to a high mountain. And he shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world in this moment, in a point, in an instant of time. So Jesus is looking at all the kingdoms of this world, with Satan looking as well. And then he says this in verses 6 and 7. The devil said unto him, All this power, that word meaning authority, will I give thee, and the glory of them. For that is delivered unto me, and whomsoever I will give it. If thou therefore wilt worship me, and shall be, all shall be thine. So, effectively, Satan offers Jesus the kingdoms of this world, right? That's what he's doing here. Now, many would say the temptation is to worship Satan. Well, really, no. That's, that's the means by which the temptation comes about. The temptation is the kingdoms of this world. Those are the temptations. That is the temptation being laid before him. Now, as we understand this, this teaches us something very, very interesting, even apart from the temptation itself, about Satan and about this world in which we live. 
I was having a good conversation last week after church about the reality that the satanic system is all around us. Oftentimes we think of it as being out and kind of distant, but really it's all around us. Uh, it, it consumes every aspect of the world, even the world in which the little pocket of world here in Buffalo or in Rockford or in, or in uh, St. Michael or in, in all of the different places where we live in Maple Lake, um, in, in, in our little pockets of the world, in Annandale, all, all those little pockets of the world, the satanic system is all around us. The world is all around us. And we find it stated explicitly here that God has given Satan authority over the kingdoms of this world. Satan is called in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 2, the prince of the power of the air. He is called by Jesus in John 12, in John 14, and in John 16, the prince of this world. He's called in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this world. We've spoken before about the conflict of kingdoms. It was not but... Uh, uh, early May, I believe, or maybe uh, late April, that I preached to you a two-part message on the kingdom conflict and introduced you, if you hadn't been introduced, or reminded you about some of the dynamics of the kingdom. But I remind you again this morning that there is a kingdom conflict which has existed since Satan's fall to sin. Satan was cast out of heaven because he sought to exalt himself above God. He sought to usurp God's kingdom and to take a kingdom for himself. And the concept of a kingdom, as we presented it several months ago, involves three ideas. It involves a right to rule. It involves a realm over which to rule. And it involves an exercise of authority. Since the day that Satan fell, he has been competing with God to set up a kingdom. And the character of Satan's kingdom is, we might say, the exact opposite. It's like the yin to the yang, a mirror image of God's kingdom. That idea of the yin and the yang, the, 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 the light and the dark, is insightful. It's occultic. It's, it's got a lot of major negative problems to the, 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 the concept behind the yin and the yang. But really, that's what Satan is doing. He is taking a dark, mirrored kingdom to God's kingdom of light. That's what he is creating. That's what he has erected. The character of, of Satan's kingdom is the same but opposite. Satan's kingdom craves power. God's kingdom exalts humility. Right? Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the pure in heart. Satan says the will to power. Crave power. Take it at any cost. The, the, the strong overpower the weak. Survival of the fittest. That's Satan's kingdom. God's kingdom exalts truth. Satan's kingdom operates under lies. God's kingdom exalts righteousness. Satan's kingdom, righteousness being that which is straight, Satan's kingdom is all about the crooked. Perversion. Confusion. Twisting. Bending. Perverting. That's Satan's kingdom. Satan's kingdom is a mirrored opposite of God's desired kingdom. Satan is the God of that kingdom as God is the God of, of the kingdom of righteousness. Satan has his false prophets just as God has His true prophets. Satan has His false Christ, just as God has His true Christ. 
Satan is simply mirroring God's kingdom in evil. When Satan was cast out of heaven, he was given authority over this realm called the world, this created realm. But he had no, while he had the authority, he didn't have the realm under his thumb. God retained the right to rule. He had delegated the authority of his creation, not to Satan. Satan was not delegated the authority over God's creation. Someone else was. Man was. Man had been created in unconfirmed innocence, but he'd been created differently from the other living things in God's creation, and that he had been made in God's image after God's likeness, an eternal spirit which could exercise itself towards God. So unlike the other animals in creation, mankind had a mind designed to know God, a heart designed to love God, and a will designed to obey God. And so we read the words of David in Psalm 8, verses 5 and 6, where David wrote, For thou hast made him, that would be man, a little lower than the angels. And has crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over all the works of thy hand. Thou hast put all things under his feet. We are made lower than the angels, but higher than the rest of the created order. And the Bible says that we, humanity, has been crowned with honor and glory. We, the Bible tells us, have been given dominion over the creation. We have been given responsibility to tend it. We have, have become, or were, be, were made, the theocratic representatives, the theocratic authority over the created world. With the exception, of course, over the angels themselves, who are above man. And so, the right to rule, Satan was given this opportunity to create this kingdom that was greater than God's. But he had no realm over which to rule. Enter the fall of man. God placed a tree in the center of the Garden of Eden called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God had given mankind every tree in the garden to eat save of the tree of that knowledge of good and evil, warning that in the day they ate of it, they would surely die. In this, God was proving man. God was seeking to prove man's love, man's loyalty, man's willingness to submit himself to the authority that was above him. Just because God had given us delegated authority over his created work, does not mean that man did not have authority of, of, of his own. It, we understand that, right? Uh, the wife has delegated authority over the family, and yet that doesn't mean she doesn't have an authority over her. For indeed, the husband is her authority. So though a person can have authority delegated to them, they can still have authorities above them. So God says, I'm delegating you creation under me. Will you obey? So God operated His kingdom program through man's willing submission and authority. Until the day that man decided he no longer wanted to be under God's authority. When Satan proposed to Eve that God had been holding them back. That they would not surely die if they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That God was trying to keep something from them. What Satan was actually doing was offering them an option. Eve. There's two kingdoms. There's God's kingdom and God's way, which says you can't. You can't have of this tree. You can have the rest, but not this tree. That's God's authority. Or there's me. I'll let you have whatever you want. I'll give you that power. 
I'll give you that which you crave. You'll be like a god. Satan's kingdom offer. Adam, as the delegated head of creation, accepted that offer, rejected God's right to rule, rejected his own headship even by submitting himself to the suggestion of his wife. He ate of the fruit. Mankind fell to sin. But much more happened than just man falling to sin. See, because man was the delegated authority over creation, right? So as the delegated authority authority over creation, when Adam rejected God's right to rule and submitted himself to Satan's kingdom... The whole of creation was led under the authority of Satan's kingdom. And so Satan has been given God-delegated authority over the created order, yet under, of course, his sovereign authority. And so two kingdoms have developed through history side by side. Now, as you study study the scriptures, you find the whole of Jesus' ministry was to redeem mankind. To redeem the fallen representatives of the created order, and so to redeem creation back to Christ, back to God. That was Christ's job, to come and to redeem creation back to God. So Paul writes in Romans 8, verses 20 to 22, For the creation was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself is also uh, also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. All of creation is under the curse. All of creation has fallen because of man's sin. All of creation is under the kingdom of Satan. But the Bible tells us that Christ came to be a curse for us. He came to earn the right to rule and to purchase a realm over which to rule. And the only thing that remains as of now, and this will take place at the end of the age, is when Jesus comes to claim his rule, to exercise his authority, to expel those that would oppose his kingdom. Now, I gave you all of that because I want you to think about what's happening here. Consider the significance of Satan's offer here. Satan is offering Jesus his kingdom. The authority over the kingdoms of this world. That's what the word power means. All this power, that that Greek word, exousia, authority. All this authority will I give to you. I have authority over the kingdoms of this world, and I will give that authority to you if you will but one time bow down and worship me. Think about this. This is Jesus' whole point in coming, isn't it? Isn't Jesus' whole point in coming to purchase the right to rule, to, to claim the kingdom, to redeem mankind from the authority of Satan, from the authority of his kingdom? His objective is to earn the right to rule over the kingdoms of this world. And Satan currently has authority over those kingdoms. So Jesus is now presented with a choice. He can do it the way God has ordained it to be done, He can crush the head of the serpent while his heel is being bruised. That prophecy, the first prophecy of Jesus Christ in Genesis 3.15. He can earn the right to the kingdoms of this world. But in crushing the head of the serpent, his heel will be bruised. He would be beaten. He would be bruised. He would be scorned. He would have to die a sinner's death. God would have to lay upon him the iniquity of us all. He would be made sin for us. 
a horrible experience in every sense of the word. So much so that as Jesus was contemplating the reality of the redemptive work in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was on his knees sweating drops of blood saying, God, if there is any possible way for you to remove this cup from me, the cup of God's wrath, take it away, please. If there's any other way, please let it be. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. It was not going to be pleasant. And now Satan is giving Jesus a second option. We could maybe surmise in our minds, Jesus knows that the world needs to be redeemed and there's this one way to do it. There's this one way to earn the kingdom. There's this one way to conquer the kingdoms of this world. There's this one way to do it. There's this one way to purchase it and it's with my death. But what if there was a plan B? What if there was another option? What if there was some other way? Satan says, Jesus, I'm going to give you another way. Another way to have the kingdoms of this world. The easy way out. The ability to bypass all of the pain. Bypass all of the trouble of redemption and simply take the kingdoms for himself. Just bow the knee to Satan and all of that pain can be avoided. All of that trouble can be avoided. You can have the kingdoms that you seek. You can have authority over the world that you want if you'll only bow to me. So the second temptation is recorded in Luke. It's the third temptation in Matthew. They're in a different order. In Luke, the second temptation. The temptation to fulfill God's purposes apart from God's will and timing. We might call it an ends justifies the means way of thinking. To fulfill God's eventual will at the expense of God's immediate will. Disobey God by worshiping Satan in order to fulfill God's will of bringing the kingdoms under submission to His Son, Jesus Christ. After all, it's the same end, God, right? It's the same end. The kingdoms become mine. So what does it matter if I do it this way or that way? What does it matter if I do it your way or Satan's way? It's the same end. He'll give me the kingdoms. Jesus' answer in verse 8. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan. For it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Notice again, Jesus falls back upon the authority of Scripture to cite his reason for refusal. Faith. Remember, that's what we talked about last week. The fact that what Satan is looking for, when when we talk about what sin is, we, we shouldn't think of sin as actions. We should think of sin as something which is seeking to divert us from the faith response. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. For without faith it is impossible to please Him. Right? Which means sin is that which is not in faith. And so Satan is attempting to divert Jesus from the faith response. And what is the best best way to maintain a firm foundation of faith? Well, have a firm foundation. Entrust it. Jesus says, look, that sounds good, but it doesn't matter if it sounds good because I know it's not good. I know it's not good because the Bible says it's not good. Because the Bible, God's will, my way, God's will, man's way, God's will, Satan's way, is not God's will. The ends do not justify the means. He refuses Satan's offer, not because they're not alluring, but because they're not right. 
because Jesus is not in the wilderness seeking to establish a name for himself, seeking to accomplish God's will his way, seeking to pragmatically walk through life the best way he knows how. Jesus lives according to the word of God. If the Bible, excuse me, if the Bible says it, then it is what God wants, and so it's what Jesus wants. Jesus quotes several possible verses here. Most likely, he, he intends to be quoting Deuteronomy 6.13 because his other two quotations in the first and the third temptation are in Deuteronomy. And it would make sense that they're all in Deuteronomy. But we also see this idea found in Exodus 20, verse 3, Deuteronomy 10, verse 20, 1 Samuel 7, verse 3. There's only one God and only one unto whom any man ought to bow the knee, and that is to the God of heaven. There's no one else that a man should uh, worship No one else that a man should idolize. So we find our second application to this point. You will be tempted all throughout your life to allow a spiritual end to justify carnal, carnal, sinful, faithless. Faithless should probably be the word there. A faithless action. Faithless actions to get to God's ends. Let us do evil that good may come. The ends justifies the means is how we often think of it. And this is pervasive in Christianity today. It's pervasive in the world today. This is the battle cry of humanism. This is the battle cry of Satan's kingdom. I want a certain end and whatever means I need to get there, I'll get there. Kill babies in the womb so that we don't have to have poor children that are neglected by their parents. I don't want this poor end of these children having... Bad parents, so let's just kill them. The ends justify the means. Lest we become overpopulated, we need to start calling our population. Killing children, killing the elderly. The ends justify the means. Kill the elderly, lest our society become overburdened with those who cannot give anything back. Or so they won't suffer. The ends justify the means. Topple governments through illegal means in order to install governments which will bring peace and stability to a region. The ends justify the means. Take money which rightfully belongs to the producers in our society and give it to those who don't produce in society to equalize things so that everyone can have their fair share. The ends justify the means. Commit illegal voter fraud in order to get your politician into office so that they can have good policy decisions. Even the lesser of two evils way of voting, it's the ends justifies the means. Gambling, playing the lottery with that, if I win, I'll do good things with it. The ends justify the means. Stealing in order to provide for yourself, the ends justifies the means. This is the battle cry of humanity. Back in Hitler's day, the concentration camps appalled the world. And as the trials took place and the German soldiers and the German officers were brought to answer for their crimes, effectively you could boil their excuse down to the ends justified the means. We wanted to purify the race and this was the best way to do it. This was the way. Was it, was it, did we like it? No, but it's what needed to be done. The ends justifies the means. It's the battle cry of human of of, of um, humanism.
But you know, it's crept into Christian circles and it's very easy for it to creep into Christian circles. How can the ends justify the means touch us? I, I, I'm afraid I, I don't have, as I looked over my notes, I don't have as many good examples as I wish I had had. Do we hate what God hates or do we do what God hates to try to bring about godly ends? I'll start with pastors. Have you ever heard a pastor or have you ever been under the regular teaching of a pastor who preaches messages that call a church to some point of action or to some standard only to realize later that the Bible doesn't actually say that? That he was emotionally manipulating his people because he feared that if they didn't feel the weight of this being deeply wrong, that they would go out and do it. So he manipulates his people into obedience or into compliance because he doesn't trust the Holy Spirit to do the work in their heart and he feels like if he doesn't tell them they may or they should and should not, then they won't. So he twists the scriptures to say things that they don't actually say in order to get the people to comply. Is that not the pastor lying to his people, whether knowingly or in ignorance, in order to bring about a desired spiritual income? Is this not the ends justifying the means? Have you ever seen a church on the other end of the spectrum introduce worldliness into the church? And they introduce worldliness into the church in order to draw people in and they say if we can just get people in and get them saved then we can start to teach them what it's like to be a Christian but we've got to get them in so we've got to make the church look like the world in order to win the world and so they destroy all the distinctives all they, they, they yield the distinctives of separation they bring in the world's music, they bring in the world's dress, they bring in the world's attitude, they bring in the world's entertainments, they bring in the world's fundraising methods, church becomes a business model, and all of this is an ends justifies the means. If I can get my church big enough, then I can reach more people. If I can get people interested, then I can reach them. If, if I can be like the world, then people will want to come to get those worldly things, and then we can just kind of slip Christ in there on them. Is that not ends justifies the means? Have people gotten saved through that? Absolutely. But it's not God's way. Could Jesus have gotten the kingdoms of this world by bowing down to Satan? Absolutely. But it wasn't God's way. And it's not, the faith response is not just about a godly end, it's about a godly journey to that end. It's about God's way of getting there, not just God's way when you're there. Have you ever had a friend lie to you so as not to hurt your feelings? Offending the truth, thinking that the end of your encouragement justifies the means of lying to you? Have you ever seen someone that's lied about their income on their taxes to get more money, justifying it that the government has enough and they need to care for their children? The list could go on. Let us do evil that good may come. Let us do wrong things to justify right ends. I want this end and this end is good, but in, in order to get to this end, I have to do it in a way that's not God's way. That's the ends justifies the means. Satan rejected, or Jesus rejected that philosophy. 
All throughout your life you will be tempted to do this. But the Bible tells us that the means matter just as much as the end. We can see it all throughout. In Romans chapter 3, verses 5 through 8, Paul directly refutes the idea that the church teaches the ends justifies the means. He says, but if our unrighteousness commends the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who take vengeance? If God is glorified even in the unrighteous, then how can God punish the unrighteous if the unrighteous are doing what they're doing to God's glory, right? Because God's going to be glorified in the unrighteous. So how is it that God can take vengeance on them? He says, I speak as a man. He's he's giving a hypothetical in the, the mind of an unbeliever. How then shall God... Judge the world, he asks. For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged a sinner? If my lie elevates God's truth, and that elevates God's glory, then why should I be punished for my lie if it's elevating the truth? If I become as black as I can be, so that God becomes brighter, and God is glorified more through my blackness, then shouldn't I be commended by God for my blackness, which makes His light shine more? It doesn't work that way, Paul says. He says, Not rather as we are slanderously reported, and some affirm that we say, Let us do evil, that good may come. He says, There are these people that say we teach and ends justifies the means. That because we say that evil still glorifies God, that those that do evil are still exalting God's truth through their evil, that therefore the evil is good. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what we say. That's an ends justifies the means. That we do evil with the end of God being glorified so the evil is okay. And notice what Paul says at the end of that verse 8. The damnation of the sinner is just. They will not be spared because their wickedness commended God's righteousness. They will not be spared because their evil magnified God's righteousness. That does not spare them. Why? Because God is not an ends justifies the means sort of a God. It's not how He operates. All throughout the Bible we see men who try to make their ends justify their means. In Genesis chapter 4 verses 4 and 5, Cain brings a sacrifice of the best of his of, of his fruit, his vegetables, of the farm to God. And he lays it before God and he says, God, this is not the sacrifice you wanted, but my end is to worship you and this is the best that I have. Isn't that a great end? My heart is right with you. And God says, I refuse this offering. But if you do well, will you not be accepted? If you have the right means, will you not get to the end that you desire? Of worship. In Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, go in to worship God. The end is God's glory and God's worship, but here's the problem. Their means was strange fire. A fire that was not from the altar of incense. Not from the altar of God, excuse me. And so their means was strange fire. Their end was God's worship and glory, and they were killed on the spot. Because the ends do not justify the means. In 1 Samuel 15, Saul spared the very best of the Amalekites' cattle. And he did so so that he could worship God. So that they could sacrifice them unto God. And Samuel comes and says, what have you done? I hear the bleeding of cattle. And Saul says, yes, we kept it for the Lord. This is right. Samuel says, no, 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 no. God said, kill everything. And Saul says, I did kill everything except what I kept for the Lord. 
The ends justify the means, right? I kept it, but I kept it for God. That means it's legitimate, right? Samuel says, God has rejected you as king because you have not obeyed him. The ends do not justify the means. Samuel chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 6, David sought to bring the Ark of the Covenant from its resting place to Jerusalem. And he puts the Ark on a new cart rather than having it carried by staves like God had told him. Getting it to Jerusalem, that's a good thing. Having it in the forefront of the people, bringing the presence of God back before the people. This is great. This is what God wants. This is a blessing to the Lord. What a wonderful end. But he chose disobedient means. The cart tipped. The ark began to tip. Uzzah puts out his hand to stable it. And he is struck dead. Because the ends do not justify the means. God wants his will Accomplished, but he wants his will accomplished his way. Jesus warned us in Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils. And in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. People saying, look, we use these means. And this is good. And we expected it to come to its end. But see, the ends don't justify the means. When we forsake the means of getting to God, which is not prophesying in his name which is not doing wonderful works, we will not reach the end that we sought. Jesus was tempted on this day to bypass all of the pain, to use another means of getting authority over the kingdoms of this world. But had he done so, Satan would have been victorious and God would have failed and thus not been God. It mattered not just that Jesus get the kingdoms of this world, but that he get them the way God had told him to. God has an opinion on how those kingdoms were to be won. And Jesus' interest, he says, it's written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shall thou serve. It's not just about the end, Satan. It's about getting there. I cannot disobey God in order to bring God's will to pass. It doesn't work that way. And every time we try, there will be compromise and there will be consequences so too we must be tirelessly devoted to the principles of God's word and truth and justice and honor and obedience and humility and submission and love. Not just in the end of our efforts, but in the means by which we achieve that end. Where God specifically tells us a means that he desires, we must conform ourselves to those means to reach his desired end. Where God does not give us a specific means by which we should do something, such as certain forms of worship, some elements of church structure. We form our own means, but we are careful to make sure that the means by which we are doing it is 100% consistent with His character to achieve His ends. Final temptation. We read in verses 9 through 12. In verses 9 through 11, we read this. And He brought him, that Satan bringing Jesus, to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle of the temple... And said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from hence, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee. And in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest any time thou shalt dash thy foot against a stone. Jesus has been using scripture references to refute Satan. So Satan says, Hey, I can do that too. And so he uses a scripture reference 
to try to tempt Jesus. He's trying to use the scriptures against him now. He takes Jesus to the highest point, to the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem. And he says, if you're really God, throw yourself off of this temple, off of this pinnacle. Now, he's not questioning whether or not Jesus is God here. It's interesting. If you look back into the original languages, those of you that have been here on um, Tuesday nights and have learned some of the Greek, remember how you could have a first class, a second class, and a third class condition? And that second and those, and particularly the third class condition is when you're actually casting doubt on something. A first class condition is when you're saying, well, since this is the case, do this. These are first class conditions. Satan is effectively saying, I understand that you're God, and since you are God, do this. Since you're God, make that bread. Make those stones into bread. Since you're God, take the kingdoms of this world. Since you're God, Throw yourself off of this pinnacle. Psalm 91, 11, and 12 is what Satan quotes here. For ye shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Jesus, if you really are the, this Messiah, since you are this God, cast yourself off the temple and prove that you won't die. Because Satan, because God gives his angels charge over you. And this is the third temptation. The temptation of tempting God's purposes and promises. Causing God to act outside of his perfect will. We'll talk about that more in a moment. Jesus' response in verse 12 is this. Jesus answering said unto him, It is said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. The concept of tempting God is different from proving God. Kind of separate these in your mind. Tempting God versus proving God. Proving God is when God makes great promises to you and you step out in faith fully relying on those promises. God has promised food and raiment, so I'm going to live my life, work hard, and trust God for food and raiment. Tempting God is testing the limits of His promises and forcing Him outside of His perfect will to make up for our choices. Um, I just gave you that, that little bit of an example to prove God. So, God has promised us, as we considered last time we were together, He says, don't be as the Gentiles scurrying around for food and raiment. God knows that you have need of these things. Go to Him and ask Him and He'll provide them for you. To prove God would be to faithfully serve where God has called in your secular job or ministry, whatever, without fretting about how I'm going to pay the bills because God is in control. That is that is in faith saying, God, I am doing your will and trusting you to provide for me. I'm doing my part and I'm trusting you to do yours. Tempting God would be for me to say, well, God has promised this for me as a believer, so I'm going to quit my job and sit on the couch and eat potato chips till I can't afford potato chips anymore and then it's God's job to, to provide for me. Right? That's tempting God. This is saying, well, since God has promised to provide, I'm going to pursue a selfish lifestyle and back God into a corner to make Him do what He's promised to do outside of the way in which He wants to do it. God had promised Jesus that He would give His angels charge over Him so that Jesus would not be hurt or destroyed. To prove God would be for Jesus to go throughout His life not limiting His ministry because of fear. So in other words, Jesus would not limit His ministry to the lepers out of fear that he'll get leprosy. Because he knew that God was going to take care of him. So he goes into the lepers. And he goes and he ministers among the lepers. And he trusts that God will take care of him. 
because God has promised to do so. That's, that's proving God. That is taking God at His word and not limiting myself or not limiting the will of God in my life because I'm afraid of things that God has already promised. To tempt God would be for no legitimate reason other than to see what God will do to cast himself off the pinnacle of the temple. Just to see God save him. Would God have done it? Yes. Is that tempting God? Absolutely. Taking God outside of what he would have desired to do. Backing God into a corner and making him act on your behalf because of your reckless or sinful choices. It is sin. Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 6.16 You shall not tempt the Lord your God as ye tempted him in Massa. The temptation of Massa was when the people pitched at Rephidim. They had no, no water. And since they had no water, they chose to murmur against God. They demanded God to provide them water then. So much so that they threatened to stone Moses. Though God had already done great wonders among them. He had parted the Red Sea. He had done tremendous things among them. And they should have patiently waited on God. They should have prayed and said, God, you've always provided. I know that you're going to provide. I can't wait to see how you're going to provide. Instead, they said, God, we are going to stone your prophet unless you give us right now what we demand. That's tempting God. So God gave them water. And notice how it's described in Exodus 17.7. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the chiding of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? God, we don't even believe that you're among us. We don't even believe that you care for us. If you don't give us water, you don't care for us. Give us water now or we'll stone your prophet. God gave them the water. They tempted the Lord. God was very displeased. And that's our third warning today. You will be tempted all throughout your life to tempt God's purposes and promises. One of your children does something wrong and you sternly rebuke them, but you show them mercy. Instead of appreciating the mercy and repenting of what they did wrong, they take advantage of your mercy and they continue doing wrong. They play the odds that your love and your mercy will continue and not give way to judgment. They're tempting you. You tell a family member that you will love and support them. They begin to make bad choices. You continue to love and support them as you've promised to do. They continue to make bad choices instead of correcting themselves. They're tempting you. This is what it means to tempt God. When God has been good to us and in His goodness to us, instead of saying, oh, I am in the wrong, when we notice we're in the wrong, and getting it corrected, we continue to persist in our sin, expecting God to make up the difference. We're tempting God. We live with sin in our lives. We continue in that sin. God is blessing in spite of us. And so we persist. We tempt God. When we tempt God, we run the risk of stepping into a place that's called God's permissive will. It's the place that Balaam stepped into in Numbers. A place where God allows us to forge a path and He doesn't resist us. He allows us to go on that path. He doesn't want us on that path, but He allows us to. He even opens the doors for us to go on that path but it's because we've already rejected what he clearly told us to do and so now we're on a path of the permissive will of God and as we are forging this path outside of God's will but bearing no marks of God's resistance even among his children because he's already made clear that you're walking outside of it and you've rejected the clarity of God's commands the end of that is natural judgment 
We see it all throughout the Bible whenever we see the permissive will of God. Balaam is the prime example of that. And he ended up attempting to curse Israel, failing to do so, and then being killed. Now consider the three judgments, the three temptations, excuse me, that we have warned about over the two parts of this message. You will be tempted all throughout your life to take what God has not provided and to meet your needs apart from God's methods. You will be tempted all throughout your life to allow a spiritual end to justify a carnal, a faithless, a sinful action. You will be tempted all throughout your life to tempt God's purposes and and promises. The interesting thing about the dangers found on this list is that they're semi-unassuming in nature. What I mean by that is this. If you were to talk to a church and you were to ask the members of the church, what are the true dangers that this church faces? What are the sins that, that, that this church faces? I don't know that, that these three sins would be on the, the list of the top ten sins that any Christian faces. But when... Satan sought to derail Jesus from his purposes. These were the temptations he used. So we should not wonder that Satan is still busy using them today. But there is hope. And that hope is in the form of Jesus' example and Jesus' power. For we read at the end of these temptations in verse 13, And when the devil had ended all the temptations, he departed from him for a season. Satan left. He was unsuccessful. Jesus resisted the temptations. And Satan left. And he did that for our example. What was the method whereby he overcame these temptations? How can you overcome temptation? Whether it's these three temptations, whether it's some other temptation. Can you overcome? You can. For 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that which ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. God always gives us the means by which to overcome the temptation that we are facing. There is never a temptation that is truly too great for us if we are in Christ. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you are a child of God by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, if you are born again and you have the indwelling Holy Spirit, there is no temptation that is too great for you to face in Christ. We read also in James 4, verses 6 and 7, But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. How is it that we resist temptation? We humble ourselves before the Lord. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. What did Jesus do? What is the example that he set? A true temptation... Jesus, at his weakest point, he was hungry. He was tired after 40 days of not eating. Boy, that'd be a bad, bad day. Now Satan comes with these heavy temptations, these pragmatic solutions to Jesus' problems and says, just take them, you're God. And Jesus says, no, I won't. I'm going to submit myself, therefore, to God. And how do I know that I'm submitting to God? Because I'm submitting to His Word, and this is God's Word. This is God's expectation. So when I submit to this, I am without question submitting to God. You don't have to walk through this life wondering if you're submitting to God. If you're submitting submitting to this book, truly submitting to this book, then you are in submission to God. 
And so you submit to God. And the Bible says Satan will flee from you. So what does it mean to submit to God? First, submit to the Spirit of God. Galatians 5.16 says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. If you want to overcome sin, you must first be submitted to the Spirit. You must be walking in the Spirit. This means you keep a short sin account with God. When you sin, you confess that sin immediately. You get it right with God, so that there's nothing between you and God, so that you're not grieving the Spirit of God, so that you're not quenching the Spirit of God. When you see that there's something in your life that is unbiblical, you deal with it, and you deal with it immediately means you spend time in God's Word and in prayer because a relationship to abide in Christ, to abide in the Spirit of God, is to spend time with Him. So you submit to the Spirit of God. Secondly, believe the Word of God. The Word of God is our divine source of instruction. Every word is true. It is the way of life. You want to overcome temptation? First, you submit to the Spirit of God because if you, sub- if you are submitted to the Spirit of God, you will not fulfill the lusts of your flesh. And every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lusts and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it's finished, bringeth forth death. Secondly, you believe the Word of God. The Bible says in 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That means it is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction. For instruction in righteousness. For what purpose? That the man of God may be perfect. Not meaning sinlessly perfect, but finished, complete. Throughly furnished unto all good works. Every good thing that you could do, the Word of God furnishes you for that. How to overcome temptation. These three temptations, they face us every day in a hundred ways. Other temptations, they stare us in the eyes. How do we overcome them? We submit ourselves to the Spirit of God. We believe the Word of God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Let's close in prayer.